Thank you, Steve. And uh, I'd like to have us turn to our text uh, for this morning. John chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. John chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. And we are continuing a sermon series uh, looking at the seven signs that the Apostle John records in the Gospel of John. Um, and uh, we're nearing the end of this series. Uh, this is uh, the sixth of seven, so we've got this one uh, this week and then one more next week. And then that will be the end of, uh, of this sermon series. So John chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, and this is what it says. As Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus said. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. But while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, Jesus spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him. Wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, um, I love the Heidelberg Catechism. Um, I love that we just used it earlier in this service, but I do have to admit that wasn't always the case. Um, Instead, uh, I remember being back in high school and uh, feeling very differently about the catechism. Forced to sit through my catechism class every Sunday after church growing up, uh, I remember feeling like it was a complete waste of time. In fact, I even said as much to my youth pastor once, who taught the class during one of those classes. Uh, after yet another uh, Sunday morning where I'd made a nuisance of myself, he, he finally asked me why I was constantly trying to derail his class, and I, uh, without missing a beat, responded to him, well, the catechism doesn't make much sense, it's never going to be relevant to my life, and so I shouldn't have to learn it. Uh, side note, but as a former youth pastor myself, I've long marveled at how patient my youth pastor was with me. Uh, even in moments like that, he never got frustrated with me. Um, instead, he, uh, he just continued to, to work with me. I think I would have hated having high school me in my own youth group that I served for the last seven years, um, but he didn't seem to let it bother him too much. Uh, he simply banned me from asking any more questions or making any more comments. And that guy tried to as well um, for the duration of his class, which lasted the whole rest of that year. Now, my feelings about the catechism changed when I went to seminary. Um, in my first semester at Calvin Sem, one of the classes that I had to take was called Reformed Creeds and Confessions, and it was all about the various doctrinal standards that our denomination, the CRC, holds to. Uh, so we looked at the, the various creeds, like the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the Athanasian Creed. And we looked at the different confessions that our denomination holds to as well. So the Belgic Confession, uh, the Canons of Dort, uh, the Contemporary Testimony, Our World Belongs to God, and then also the Heidelberg Catechism. And due to my experience uh, back in high school with the Catechism, I remember being initially kind of skeptical when we started that unit. This thing again. Um, wasn't super excited to learn it. But maybe it was just that it was a few years later or a whole lot of maturity later. Um, this time it didn't take long for the catechism to win me over. And soon after we started working through it in class, I remember thinking something along the lines of, why did I never appreciate this before? 
This is beautiful. This is wonderful. Um, I can't believe how good this stuff is. What impressed me that second time around with the catechism was its way with words. Um, it, put simply, it has uh, the ability to profoundly yet simply explain the truths of what we believe as Reformed Christian believers. Take, for instance, one of my favorite parts of the catechism, question and answer 27. It begins with the question, what do you understand by the providence of God? And this is what it says. God's providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which God upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance but by his fatherly hand. All things, no matter what they are, come to us not by chance, but by God's fatherly hand. That to me is such a wonderful, gentle, reassuring articulation of God's care and provision and goodness towards us as human beings. And as the next question and answer goes on to say, knowing that God takes care of us like that as his people means that we can be patient when things go against us, thankful when things go well, and for the future, we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that nothing in creation can separate us from his love. For all creatures are so completely in God's hand that without his will, they can neither move nor be moved. And yet, as much as I love that, it does beg a question. You see, if that's true that God upholds us, that he rules all things to the extent that nothing happens by chance but only comes to us by his fatherly hand, that nothing can separate us from his love or that we can only move or be moved by his will. If that's all true, and I believe it is, by the way, then what about the bad things in life? What about the things we don't want or wouldn't wish for, either for ourselves or for anyone else? What about the difficulties, the stress, the strain, the heartache and heartbreak that we sometimes experience in this life? Are those things from God as well? Are they part of his providence? Do they also come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand? That's actually the question that I think Jesus' disciples are asking him here in this text. In this text, Jesus and his disciples are back in Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals, and as they're making their way through the city, they come across a man who is blind from birth. And the text doesn't tell us how they knew that he was blind from birth, just that he was. And that brings up a question for Jesus' disciples. You see, at the time, there were certain Jewish theologians um, who said that certain difficulties, diseases, and physical limitations um, only came to people as a result of sin. They had to have sinned somehow, and, and that's how they had ended up with whatever it was they were dealing with. So leprosy, which was a skin disease, was one of those. Uh, ongoing bleeding or, or infection was another one, and blindness was included in that category too. But simply, according to those Jewish theologians, you only ended up with one of those kind of difficulties if God sent it to you. And God would only send you something like that if you had sinned in some sort of way that caused him to send that to you. And so that seems to be the understanding or worldview that Jesus' disciples were operating under when they came across this blind man here in this text. 
They were thinking that his blindness had to be the result of some sort of sin. That's why he was blind. The fact that he had been born blind, though, created a bit of a wrinkle for Jesus' disciples, though. Because if that was the case, then whose sin was it that caused his blindness? If he had never not been blind, did that mean that maybe somehow he had sinned before he was born? Was that possible? Or maybe it was his parents who had done something that upset God. And so rather than punishing them with blindness, God had instead sent it to their child. And so confused and unsure of the answer, Jesus' disciples put the question to him in verse 2. Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents? He was born blind. In other words, Jesus' disciples are asking him why God would punish this man with blindness. Was it his fault or his parents? The disciples weren't sure. The only thing that it seems they were sure of was that it was someone's fault. That's why this man was blind. Now, that might sound kind of harsh to us as modern 21st century people, um, saying that it had to be someone's fault, either this man or his parents, that he was born blind. But that was actually one of the dominant religious ideas of the day uh, in the ancient world. Uh, The technical term that religious scholars use to describe this way of thinking today is called retribution theology, but it's basically the idea that God or the gods send retribution, punishment, and pain uh, to people when they commit a sin or do something evil, do something bad, but they send goodness, mercy, kindness, and blessing when people live faithfully or obey them. And boil it down, it's basically the idea that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. And and pretty much all of the ancient pagan religions of the world believed that, some version of that. They were pretty much based on the idea that you got what you deserved. If you were a bad person, then you would get bad things. If you were a good person, then you got good things. And so what you had to try to do in pretty much all of those ancient religions was do more good things than bad things in your life so that you would also get more good things than bad things from the gods. And in most of those ancient religions, the way that you did that The way that you did good things was by doing whatever the gods told you to do. If the god wanted sacrifices, then you had to sacrifice. If the god wanted worship, then you had to worship. If the god wanted you to keep a small idol of him or her in your house and pray to it a few times a day, then you had to do that. The goal was to do whatever it took to make the god happy so that they would only send you good things in your life and none of the bad. And again, that seems to be more or less the perspective that Jesus' disciples are operating under here, too. That, they believed, is why this man had been born blind. Because somebody at some point must have messed up. Somebody must have sinned. Somebody must have done something to offend God, and that's why he had sent blindness to this man. The thing is, it's, it's not just people back then who thought that way, though people still today who think that way too. For instance, when something bad happens to someone, especially if they're kind of a bad person themselves, people will often say things like, well, you know, they had it coming. What goes around comes around. It was only a matter of time before something like this happened to them. And of course, the people who say those sorts of things today, they're not actually believers in the same sort of pagan religions that that people believed in in Jesus' day. And yet, without realizing it, what they're actually doing is articulating more or less the same worldview that people back then held. That pagan idea that bad people get bad things and good people get good things is still very much alive and well today, including, unfortunately, even among some who claim to be Christians. 
is he probably the most popular Christian version of this idea that bad people get bad things and good people get good things is something called prosperity theology. Maybe you've heard of this. It's uh, been popularized in recent years by well-known preachers like Joel Osteen and Paula White, Creflo Dollar and Joyce Meyer, as well as others. Um, but it's basically the same idea, updated and Christianized, um, that God sends good things to those who are good and bad things to those who are bad. And so you better be more good than bad so you get more good than bad things. Do the things that God wants you to, often, according to those preachers, things like attending their churches, buying their books, supporting their ministries with money, and then God will prosper you with health and wealth and everything that you've ever wanted in your life. And if your life isn't that way, they said, they say, if you are dealing with some sort of difficulty, some sort of adversity, some sort of hardship, well then you must not be doing a good enough job you got to have a little more faith, a little more trust, a little more of whatever it is that God wants from you. There must be something in your life that he disagrees with, some transgression, some offense, some secret sin, and you need to discover that and eliminate it because only then will God start to bless you the way that you want. Now, in case this isn't clear from the way I'm kind of describing this already, it's important for me just to pause here and clearly and simply say that that is not what we believe as Christians. Uh, that idea and the whole worldview and perspective that makes up the foundation of prosperity theology, I would say, is nothing less than heresy. It's a distortion of Scripture. It's anti-grace, anti-gospel, and anti-Christian. It's a false version of the Christian faith. And if it sounds like I'm coming down hard on this this morning, one, it's because I am, and two, because this is actually a version of the Christian faith, a distortion of the Christian faith that I myself fell into believing for a large chunk of my life. Uh, people are always surprised when I talk about this, but for much of my life I've struggled with something called social anxiety disorder. Um, what that basically means is that there are certain social situations that, that make me nervous. Um, not the normal kind of nervous that you get like when you fly or go on a roller coaster or something like that. Um, but the kind of nervousness that actually makes it hard for you to function around other people. You see, for me, my nervousness and anxiety um, manifests itself as nausea. When I get nervous in a certain situation, I get kind of this pit in my stomach. Um, and that has a tendency to grow. And the more nervous I get, the more nauseous I start to feel. The more nauseous I get, though, it becomes a bit of a catch-22 because that makes me more nervous. And it just kind of cycles from there. Nervousness to nausea, nauseous, uh, nauseousness to nervousness. And finally, I end up getting sick and, and throwing up. And in fourth and fifth grade, that took over my life. Uh, I actually remember when it started. I was on a cadet camp out with my church. Uh, I was in the fourth grade at the time, and one night we decided to make these deep-fried donuts, and um, I understand that maybe it's sort of a tradition in the CRC to make these. I don't know if you've ever had them or not. Basically, what you do is you fill a fry pan with oil, and you take one of those Pillsbury tubes of dough, you open that up, and you take out the strips of dough, form them in donuts, throw them in the oil, fry them up, and then you pull them out, and this is where uh, you have options. You can roll them in either regular sugar, cinnamon sugar, or powdered sugar. Uh, whatever you like best, and then eat as many of them as you can. And while we were on this uh, campout, uh, this unofficial eating competition emerged. Who of us can eat the most of these things? And uh, again, I was in fourth grade. This is pre-growth spurt Brandon. I was quite small, actually. Um, definitely was not known as the guy who could go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the best eaters in the cadet uh, 
uh, group that I was in. And yet to their surprise and mine and everyone's there, I was going, uh, I was actually holding my own against the biggest eaters in the group. First three donuts was no problem. Four and five were a little bit tougher. Um, got through those, no problem. Six and seven is where we started to weed out, you know, the wannabes and, uh, and they couldn't hang anymore. Number eight was the one that, that eliminated everyone except for just me and one other kid. Nick Ritter, the biggest kid in the cadet group. And so by that point, I already felt like I'd won. You know, I made it all the way to number eight with Nick Ritter, but our leaders insisted on seeing who could win, so they served up donut number nine to each of us. Um, we both ate it, shook hands at the end of it, decided to call it a draw. We were both done. And I basked in the glory of having tied Nick Ritter in an eating competition and then promptly spent the rest of the night throwing up because um, there was so much oil and sugar and dough, my body just needed to get rid of it. Okay, no problem. My dad was actually a counselor. We went home. I felt fine uh, by the end of the weekend. Um, a couple weeks later, I got invited to another sleepover, though, at a friend's house. And unbeknownst to me, um, in the day or week leading up to it, I'm not sure when, I had apparently caught a stomach bug and had the stomach flu. Um, felt fine enough to go, but uh, I just felt sicker and sicker and sicker over the course of the evening. And uh, finally, about the time we were about to go to bed was when I, I got sick and again started throwing up. My parents came, they picked me up, they brought me home. And again, it's no problem, except for by that point, the connection had started in my brain. When I go on a sleepover, I get sick. If I do this again, if I go on another sleepover, I'm going to puke. And so a month later, when a different friend invited me on a sleepover, that's exactly what ended up happening. I was already nervous. What if I go and I get sick again? People aren't going to want to invite me on sleepovers anymore. You don't want to hang out with the kid who always gets sick every time you invite him over. And so I was nervous already by the time I got there, and that nervousness kept building into more nausea and more nausea into more nervousness, and that cycle just started to continue until, sure enough, without having eaten a ton of junk food, without having had the flu or anything like that, I ended up getting sick in the middle of the night. And that happened every sleepover that I went on for the rest of grade school and middle school. In high school, I didn't date because I was too nervous to go out with anybody who wants to go on a date with a guy who always throws up, right? First semester of college, every first day of every new semester, I would get sick and throw up just because my classes were different and it made me nervous and anxious. Um, and so on and so forth. Over the years, there were few areas of my life that my anxiety didn't bleed into and start to affect. And I remember during that time begging God to take it away from me. I remember asking over and over and over, why are you punishing me with this? I try to be a good kid. I try to be a good Christian. What have I done or not done that would make you treat me this way? Why are you allowing this to happen to me? And there was no answer. There was no epiphany. God didn't tell me what was going on. He didn't show me the reason why I was struggling with anxiety. He didn't show me the purpose or cause for it. And so finally, I decided to figure it out for myself. I started to examine every area of my life. What is it that God wants from me? What is it that I've done? What secret sin have I committed or not? What, what, what maybe sin of omission? What have I not done that he needs me to do for him to take this away? And finally, I came to the answer. It was my profession of faith. Remember a few months ago, we had a bunch of our young people up here and they professed their faith. I was 16 at the time, a sophomore in high school, and I realized that's got to be it. 
That's the step of trust and faith that God wants me to take, and if I do that, he'll take this away from me. And so I signed up for the class at my church. I went before the elders and interviewed with them. I got up in church one Sunday morning and publicly professed my faith, and nothing changed. My anxiety was still there. God didn't magically take it away. He didn't magically remove it and replace it with all of the good things that I wanted in my life. He didn't respond to my demonstration of faith the way that I thought he would. Instead, the way that this story ends is that over, a course, uh, over the course of a decade, God used a whole combination of counseling and prescription medication and various coping techniques to help me uh, manage and then finally overcome my anxiety. And now I'm the raging extrovert that you all have to deal with. But the point is that it didn't work the way I thought it would. It didn't magically go away. My anxiety didn't magically disappear. It didn't work that way because God never works that way. The Bible is actually very clear on that. In contribution to the retribution theology or prosperity theology religions of the world, the Bible paints a very different picture of us and of God and of his relationship with us. In fact, there's really only one place in the Bible where we see that kind of retribution or prosperity theology articulated. It's in the book of Job. In the book of Job, after all sorts of things happen to Job and his family, three of Job's friends arrive. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite. And for seven days and seven nights, they don't do anything. Actually, all they do is they just sit there in silence with Job because as the text says, they saw how great his suffering was and they just sat with him in it. But then Job speaks in chapter 3, and after that, his friends start to speak too. And for the next 22 chapters of the book, all they say, more or less, is that Job must have done something to deserve his suffering. It's kind of like a crash course in Retribution Theology 101. Like me with my anxiety, Job's friends are convinced that his suffering has some sort of cause, and that that cause is him They speculate all sorts of things. He must have committed some secret sin. He must have accidentally cursed God. He must have done something or not done something that would cause God to send all the suffering he's experiencing his way. In other words, Job's friends are convinced that God works like all the other gods of the pagan ancient world. He sends good things to good people and bad things to bad people. And so because Job is receiving bad things, then he must have done something to deserve it. Otherwise, God wouldn't have sent those things his way. You know how that book actually ends, though? God explicitly rejects that. In the very last chapter of the book of Job, after God sort of explains to Job what's happened and why and sort of doesn't, um, he turns his attention to Job's friends. And in verses 7 through 9, he sa- it, it says this, After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends, because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. Basically, ask forgiveness. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. You have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. And so that's what they do. They go and they sacrifice and Job prays on their behalf and God accepts their apology. But what we see there is that God explicitly rejects this, this retribution, prosperity, theology way of thinking. He says, that's not how I work. 
He doesn't just send good things to good people and bad things to bad people. Suffering or hardship isn't always the result of sin. That's the point. It's more complicated than that. Sometimes bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people and we don't always know why. That's something that the Bible consistently teaches all the way from Job to the Psalms to the book of Ecclesiastes to what Jesus says to his disciples here. Who sinned? Jesus' disciples ask him. This man or his parents that he was born blind and Jesus in line with all of the rest of scripture says neither. Neither this man nor his parents sinned. But, he continues, this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And that begs a different question. What are those works of God? And this is what I want us to see here. This is where we see the sign of what John is trying to reveal to us about who Jesus is. Jesus does something strange in this passage. Verses 6 through 7 say, Having said this, he, Jesus, spit on the ground, made some mud with his saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. It's a, it's a really strange way to do this. It's a strange way to work a miracle. But this is how Jesus gives this blind man sight. For the first time in his life, this man can see. After who knows how many years of darkness, Jesus has healed him, restored him, and finally let the light in. And that's the answer. What are the works of God? It's sight for the blind. This is what we need to see in this passage. Unlike the disciples here, we shouldn't get caught up in debates about uh, who and why and, and what caused what and why certain things happened to some people and not to others. That's not the point. Instead, the point is that Jesus gives sight to the blind. That's what John wants to reveal to us about who Jesus is. That's the sign here. Because the fact of the matter is that Jesus doesn't actually just heal this man's physical blindness. He heals something else, too. He heals his spiritual blindness as well. We didn't read all the rest of it because it's uh, quite long, but the rest of this chapter makes that pretty clear. I'll suffice it to say that after Jesus performs this miracle, this man not only gains his physical sight to see the world clearly, but also his spiritual sight to see Jesus clearly. In fact, by the end of the chapter, he even ends up confessing his faith in Jesus and worshiping him. And the same thing needs to be true for us. I can't tell you why some people end up enduring hardship and others don't. I can't tell you why some of us go through difficulty, disease, and adversity in our lives, while others of us have health, wealth, and wellness uh, the entire time that we live on this earth. I can't tell you why there are some in this world born into disadvantage, pain, and trouble, while others of us experience nothing but privilege and happiness and blessing. I can't tell you that, and I think that those who try, like Job's friends, have gone a step too far. The fact of the matter is that we live in a broken, fallen world, and so sometimes that brokenness and fallenness finds its way into our lives. And there's not always a great reason for it. There's not always some secret sin that's causing it. There's not always a rhyme or reason to tell us why it's happening. Sometimes it's a mystery. What's not a mystery, though, at least according to Scripture, is how we might get through it. Regardless of our circumstances, regardless of whether our lives are easy or difficult, regardless of whether we enjoy good things, bad things, or more likely a mix of the two, 
the consistent witness of Scripture is that God is there through all of it, faithfully present with us and committed to loving us, caring for us, and making clear his will and desire to be in relationship with us. That's what the catechism means when it says that all things come to us not by chance, but by God's fatherly hand. It doesn't mean that all those things will always be good. It doesn't mean that they'll all be the way we want them to be. It doesn't mean even that we deserve them. It simply means that whatever happens, good or bad, we'll be able to look at and see that our Father God is there with us. That's the kind of sight that Jesus gives to this blind man here in this passage. It's the kind of sight that he gives to us as well. And that brings us to the gospel. Like I said, that's the true meaning of this sign here in John chapter 9. Jesus not only heals this man's spiritual blindness, he heals ours as well. He gives us sight. He drives out the darkness and gives us light to see God's mercy, grace, and love in our lives. Because of our sin, we couldn't see that. We were blind and hopelessly lost. As William Temple writes in his commentary on this passage, the man blind from birth is every man, every person. For it is a part of that sin of the world which the Lamb of God beareth away, that by nature we are blind until our eyes are opened by Christ, the light of the world. And my friends, God's grace to us is that our eyes indeed have been opened. Christ has given us our sight. He has healed, redeemed, and renewed us. He has made it possible for us to see both him and his Father clearly. That's what he accomplished in his life among us, his death for us, and his resurrection ahead of us. And what do we see with that sight that he's given us? We see a Savior and Lord worthy of worship. We see a Father God we don't always understand, but who we know is always with us. And finally, throughout our lives, come what may, in both seasons of adversity and also of blessing, we see his tender love, boundless mercy, and continual grace to us. That's the sight that Jesus came to offer us. It's not a sight that always makes sense of everything that we wish it did, but it is a sight that helps us see clearly what and who matters most. It's the sight that helps us see Jesus. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord, we are your fallen creatures who live in a fallen world and experience the effects of that fallenness much more frequently than we would often like to. And yet, Lord, you have given us eyes to see, ears to hear, sight in our blindness to see you truly and clearly. As we navigate this world, Lord, help us to continue to have that sight, to reflect you as the light of the world, and to share that light and sight with others as well. We pray this all in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.